Hello, I'm Peter Laws, and this is a sermon-only episode of the Creepy Cove Community Church podcast. If you'd like to hear the full church service, complete with strange comedy, special guests, and notices like you've never heard before, then all the shows are available for free. Just visit creepycove.com to find out more. But if you just want to hear a sermon, a time of quiet reflection, and a song, then this is for you. I'd be grateful if you could check out patreon.com forward slash creepycove to find out how you can support the show and get lots of exclusive Thanks, everyone. I'd love to be back. And but thank for you now, Flora and Rupert Rupert for the service. Wonderful news about Thanks. Boris and the toilets. Exciting times for us all. Well, for the last few services, we've been exploring how scary and disconcerting it can be when we find ourselves doubting our worldview, no matter what that is. And I've been sharing with you how you don't have to be freaked out about doubt, that it's normal and we doubt everything. And it doesn't mean that things are falling apart, but it still can be a scary experience. And in this final session, I want to explore how doubt can even become a very positive thing. Instead of a stumbling block, it can be actually a stepping stone. Uh, Sometimes really when we have these kind of existential crises or these experiences in our life, we might not realize it at the time, but they can be an invitation to move into, if you will, a deeper level of consciousness. You know, those dark moments of doubt can actually end up becoming profound moments of teaching for us. Of course, it doesn't feel that way at the time. And when you start to question everything you previously held dear, it can have the potential to plunge us into an understandable maelstrom of fear and anxiety and sadness. One of the religious terms for this, by the way, is uh, is the dark night of the soul, which sounds like a kind of 80s slasher movie, but it's um it's this idea of when we hit this uh, this crisis in our life, when we, we what we perceive to be the meaning of life falls apart. You know, things stop making sense. Sometimes it could be triggered by a life event, uh, the death of a loved one, for example, or perhaps where a parent who has been devoted to our children and then they grow up and we realize they no longer need us in the same way. And it gets kind of weird when they're adults and we're hanging around going, would you like me to walk you across the street? And they're like, please leave me alone, father. Um, You know, it can be an illness or um, maybe just a simple awareness of growing older. There's all sorts of things um, that can come, which can be quite scary. Or sometimes it has to do with our ambitions. We may have lived our life with a dream and of optimism and hope. Let's, you know, for sake of argument, imagine if you started out in life and your dream was to get to Hollywood and become a young actor and you get there and you get a few parts here and there, but then you hit your thirties or your forties and you realize, you know what? I never have gotten that big role that I wanted and I'm still working as a waiter or something. And you can start to feel that this dream is like sand going through your fingers and that can end up making you lose a sense of purpose and direction. Um, And that can lead to these kind of dark nights. Or it might be simply when we question long-held beliefs, when we doubt our faith in God, or indeed, if we're atheists, we doubt our faith in atheism or some other worldview. It, It can be an unexpected and a jolting change. You know, that idea of somebody pulling the rug from under you. It's almost like pulling the floor as well from under you. I've heard this described in a vivid way once that there can there comes a time in our lives sometimes it often happens in midlife you know what is midlife well 40s maybe into your 50s or maybe even earlier it can be different for different people but there can come a time in our life when you start to feel like things are changing and um 
we're not the same person that perhaps we used to be, but we're also we're not really sure what person we are going to be in the future. And we're left in this weird liminal mid-space without a, a strong sense of who we are. And that is pretty scary. It's like being in the dark. And all the black and white answers that we had before are moving into a place, a frustrating place potentially, of grayness. And yet what is fascinating is when you read about this idea of the dark night of the soul, of people hitting a time of doubt and existential crisis, you learn two things. One, that it's pretty crappy, right? <laughs> like, you know, let's not like, gloss over it. It can be a horrible experience. It can last for weeks and months, in some case, even years. But we also see an interesting pattern that many, many people talk about coming through this crisis and that it leads them to this, some kind of rebirth. Not just as the person you used to be, but you're still that person, but you become like an evolved version of the same person. You're like when Pokemon, when you evolve a, um, one of your Pokemon, it's almost like that. You're like, you go through this blasting experience. It's, it's hard to explain because this new, uh, this new you, maybe starts to realize that perhaps I needn't or shouldn't base my self-worth and my dreams and my ideas on, on jobs or looks or my health even, but it becomes something more abstract and actually something deeper. I've heard some people describe this dark night of the soul as horrible, and yet it wound up becoming a sort of awakening to something new, a willingness to see beauty in life and perhaps ways you've not seen before. Without it, all having to fit into the previous strict frameworks of this is, if this happens, I will be happy. Nope. There comes a time when you find yourself no longer living in the past, no longer dreading an imagined future, but actually experiencing the gift of the present moment. <laughs> that sounds like a very kind of Oprah Winfrey sort of phrase, but it is true. The power of now, they call it, don't they? Now, one of the reasons doubt can freak us out so much is that we feel that we have to have an answer for everything. And that can lead us to judging others because they don't fit into these frameworks. But it also leads us to judge ourselves. We can become cruel to ourselves because we think, well, these are, this is the strict criteria that will determine if I'm a happy person. Like the actor who wanted to be a star, for example, and yet they never made it to the level they wanted. Why do they feel like a failure? If they don't feel like a failure because they're not a famous actor, because most people are not famous actors and yet find happiness in life. Now, simply put, this person feels like a failure because they have pinned all of their self-worth on achieving a very specific thing. Now, it's noble and cool to go for these dreams. Don't get me wrong. And you still can. But it's also incredibly hard to achieve to become a famous actor. It's often about luck. So this guy who's trying for this and maybe hasn't achieved it, they are not a failure at all, but they just haven't ticked that box that they demanded of themselves. But hopefully in time, they will realize that that person, they are more than just that specific ambition in their life. Sometimes we have to go through the valley of doubt to shake off some of the unfair expectations on ourselves. It doesn't mean you can't keep striving to be an actor. But there's a certain wisdom when you realize that your life does not have to depend on such strict criteria. And the revelation comes sometimes only in the dark, when the things we've relied on suddenly feel unreliable all of a sudden. 
This phrase, by the way, Dark Knight of the Soul, is linked most with a Spanish Christian mystic called St. John of the Cross uh, from the 16th century. And he had like a shockingly bad life in terms of suffering. He, he went through horrendous experiences. He got imprisoned in a monastery by a court of friars who accused him of disobedience. He was publicly lashed in front of the community at least once a week. He had barely any food or drink. He wasn't allowed to change his clothes. He was kept in a tiny cell. Um, some have described it almost like a cupboard, and he was imprisoned. And this friar um, had, a, had a guard on his cell. And this guard must have seen something in St. John of the Cross because he started to pass in paper so that uh, St. John could start writing while he was in this imprisonment. And he wrote beautiful and lyrical poems that are revered today as masterpieces of Spanish poetry. And he wrote this poem called The Dark Knight. Um, no, not the Batman movie, but he wrote this poem. And uh, it was just where we get this phrase, the dark night of the soul from. And basically, this idea of it is talking about how we can go through storms of suffering that he would call as the night of the spirit, where basically the soul, the humanity of us, we, we no longer depend on things of the senses. And we're left with, in some ways, you know, if we're, if we're religious, I guess, we can only rely on God. There's nothing else left. And even that might disappear for a while, a feeling of God's absence. But that this night can, can has the, have the potential and often does, can lead to a profound transformation in our relationship with God or we experience a new level of faith. This, um, this was something that John called a luminous darkness, kind of a cool idea. The idea of the darkness actually having an unexplained light in it transforms us precisely because it's mysterious. It changes us perhaps in a good way, precisely because it's hard. Even though it feels like we've lost our way, we are discovering a new way. You see, sometimes transformation can only happen when we truly feel lost. If it all made sense, it just wouldn't change us in the same way. Sometimes real change is not when we take control, but when we find control taken away from us. It's, I don't know, it's like a time when our illusions get undone, when we find our ego is challenged and it's scary. And man, if you're experiencing that at the moment, my heart is rushing towards you right now. I know what it's like. I've experienced this sort of thing before myself and it feels like it could last forever. But listen to me now, there are millions of people in the world who have moved through this time and come out the other side with a renewed, perhaps even more relaxed sense of self, a kind of new relationship with suffering that doesn't insist that life can only be good if it has no suffering in it. I was chatting to a man recently who grew up in Iran and he became a Christian when he was uh, living there and he ended up getting imprisoned for his faith and the story as he told me it was just scary and traumatic and yet somehow he managed to have this profound sense of joy and hope in the midst of that and I remember looking at him thinking I don't know if I could be that type of person. But then I realized he might have said he might not have been that type of person until he went through that valley and he found himself being formed into something new. And that's not to belittle the valley. And it's not to say that that experience wasn't horrible. It was horrendous. But it was just amazing how he had this sense of positivity in the midst of something that on the outside looking in looked like purely negative. This is weird bit in the Bible that we heard read to us by Flora earlier. When a prophet called Ezekiel has a vision where God gives, gives him a scroll and um, on the scroll is written words of lament and mourning and woe. 
And the voice says, eat that scroll. So he does. He opens his mouth and he starts chowing down. But when he tastes it, when he tastes it, he says that actually this thing that looked terrible, it tasted as sweet as honey in his mouth. Please hear me. I'm not trying to say, you know, if you're going, to, if you're going through a bad experience, well, actually think about it because it's actually good. It's nice. It's great for you. You should be thankful. That's not what I'm saying at all. These experiences are terrible and shocking. But this, I'm just intrigued by this subversive view that says potentially um, a sense of peace and happiness does not have to wait for the situation to change. It could bloom and even taste like honey in amongst the lament and mourning and woe. I once heard someone say that the dark night of the soul is that time when we um, are actually being closely held by God and yet we are totally and purposefully not aware of it because that's where the transformation takes place. These times of doubts and questioning and darkness, they come to everybody. And like I said, you know, I've mentioned a few God type things there, but you don't have to be into God to have gone through these sorts of things. Christians, Muslims, Wiccans, atheists go through this sometimes. Yeah, atheists sometimes doubt their own atheism. Listen to this. This is a, a quotation from the author Nick Hornby, and he wrote the books uh, About a Boy, Fever Pitch, High Fidelity. He's an atheist who loves music. And I was really interested to read this that he wrote. He said that music sometimes makes him doubt his uh, his worldview occasionally. He says, I try not to believe in God, of course, but sometimes things happen in music when things add up to more of the sum of their parts, when the effects achieved are inexplicable. And then atheists like me start to get into difficult territory. When I say that you can hear God in music, I do not suggest that there's an old chap with a beard, a divine Willie Nelson, if you will, warbling along with them. And nor do I wish to imply that this surprise guest appearance proves that Jesus died for our sins or that rich men will have difficulty entering the kingdom of heaven. I just mean that at certain spine-shivering musical moments, it becomes difficult to remain a literalist. So for Nick Hornby, you know, as an atheist, sometimes he has doubts. So don't freak out if you're an atheist and you sometimes doubt. It's very normal. But also revered Christians on the other side of the, the table, as it were, they have doubt too. The influential author C.S. Lewis, for example, he's so often held up as a strong defender of the Christian faith. And he said this in a letter once that he wrote on Christmas Eve in 1930. He said, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. I have no rational ground for going back on the arguments that convinced me of God's existence, but the irrational dead weight of my own skeptical, sorry, my old skeptical habits and the spirit of this age and the cares of the day steal away all my lively feelings of the truth. And often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. However, there is nothing to do but to peg away. There are people in the Bible, people who are often held up as Bible heroes who had doubts. Abraham, John the Baptist, the, the disciple, of course, Thomas, who didn't believe Jesus was back from the dead, and became famously known as Doubting Thomas. What a, what a name to be given to you. You know, I'm, I'm famous for being Doubting Thomas. Well, what Jesus did in the face of Thomas' doubts was interesting when he heard that Thomas was doubting. Jesus wasn't like, you lukewarm piece of trash. <laughs> you should get on your knees and believe. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You should know better, but just trust me. He doesn't do that at all. No, he doesn't condemn Thomas. Actually, he says something gross. 
He says, Thomas, come and put your finger into my crucifixion wounds. Then you'll know it's legit. In other words, Jesus seemed to see doubts as quite reasonable. And he even, in, a, in response to them, offered evidence for them. That's what the miracles in the New Testament are supposed to be about, aren't they? They're described as signs and wonders that give us evidence for the crowds there hearing his teaching, but evidence to say maybe there's more to him than just being a good teacher. But what about Jesus himself? At an Easter prayer breakfast many years ago, President Barack Obama gave a short address, and the title was fascinating. It was Jesus New Doubt. And in it, Obama talked about how Jesus wrestled with thoughts of doubt as he went to the cross, pleading that his suffering could be taken away. And Obama saw this as an example of Jesus himself having, having fear and having doubt and being unsure. Obama was criticized by some Christian groups in America who said that oh, it's impossible for Jesus to experience doubt or fear. But I find the idea pretty compelling. After all, in the book of Hebrews, it says, uh, we do not have a high priest, talking of Jesus, who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness, but we have one who has tempted, been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. It's possible to doubt. You know, when you doubt God, it doesn't mean you're sinning. When you're not sure of yourself about anything, it doesn't mean that you're being a bad person. You're being a real person. Did Jesus doubt? Like Obama suggests, I reckon that's quite reasonable to suggest that. On the cross, doesn't he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His dark night of the soul. And yet, as that horrible experience happened, the point towards the, the, the story of Jesus, of course, is not just death, but it's resurrection. So just remember, everybody doubts sometimes. And for some of us, we can go through periods where nothing makes sense anymore. And we might even call it a dark night of the soul. And it can be incredibly difficult and yet, we should try and remember, if we can, not only, firstly, that millions of other people have faced the same thing and are actually facing the same thing at the same time, the same upheaval, maybe not admitting it to others, but you are not alone in this. And yet, millions have also found that rather than it becoming a stumbling block, on the other side of it, they found it's a stepping stone into a new way to be human. And so we're going to move into a time of prayer and meditation. Remember, you don't have to be into like spirituality to benefit from this types of re reflection. Um, for me, I'll be talking about God a bit towards the end of this because I find that meaningful, but do feel free to ignore that if that doesn't resonate with you. But I'm going to tell you a quick story. I don't know how accurate this is, by the way, but I think it's a useful image nonetheless. And I want you to use your imagination to picture yourself within this story. And so find a space and close your eyes and picture yourself sitting in a desert or a canyon scene in the southeastern area of the US. You know, imagine the sort of landscape you would see in Native American culture, maybe in the horror movie Nightwing. <laughs> Let's go. So I'm going to tell you a story about a rite of passage used by the Cherokee Indians. And as I tell you this story, meditate on it. Picture yourself as the child in this story. It is said that one of the ways a child passes into adulthood is that their father would take them into the forest or in an open space and would blindfold them. 
and then the father would leave them alone. Picture yourself as that child. Someone you care about, a parent, puts a blindfold on you and you hear them walking away. And to pass this test, the child is required to sit there on a log or a tree stump for the whole night and they're not allowed to remove the blindfold. The child is not allowed to cry out for help and they certainly are not allowed to leave. And the custom supposedly says that if the child survives the night, they have passed from childhood to adulthood, from immaturity to maturity. Picture yourself in that moment. You have been left alone by the one you thought you could love and trust. And you're unable to see. Maybe that describes your life right now. Now obviously the child's gonna be terrified. In the darkness of not only the night, but also the blindfold is utterly disorientating and can make the mind place tricks on them. How do you know if the sound next to you is just the wind blowing a dry leaf or a scorpion or a snake approaching? And your mind would be filled with confusion and anger. Why did your supposedly loving parent do this to you? And what about the genuine danger from predators? It is scary. Makes you angry at the system. But you've been told this is the way. And you have to get through the night. And then finally, after a very long and frightening experience, you feel the warmth of the sun as it slowly appears, and you hear birds waking up. And the child knows that it's finally over. They did it, and they can remove the blindfold, and they have become mature. But when they do, they discover that their father has been sitting next to them. They had no idea the dad had been there the entire night on guard, protecting the child protecting you from anything that might cause real harm. <laughs> With that image in mind, let's pray. For those of us who are in the deepest ditch of the night, we pray for courage and for a reminder that the night will not last forever. For those of us who are hearing sounds around us that we assume are deadly, we pray for reassurance and the knowledge that the thoughts that scare us may not actually reflect reality. They are thoughts. And for those of us who feel angry that we have found ourselves in the dark desert, we pray for a peace that goes beyond all understanding, a raising of consciousness so that we might somehow, sometimes, realize that the darkness is letting us see the stars more. And for those of us who are lonely and feel like we have been abandoned, we pray for a reassurance that we have a companion who cares for us, who, yes, sometimes allows us to experience a dark night, and yet they experience it with us and are there for us through the night and into the morning. I pray that the morning will dawn soon for everybody listening to my voice now. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to that. We're going to move into a time of music and we're gonna invite the band up and they can lead us into uh, the latest horror hymn, which is called, I understand, Luminous Darkness. See what they did there.
Well, put your hands together for our church band. And remember, if you like the songs from our services, you can find us on Bandcamp, where an album of songs comes out at the end of each season. Thanks for coming, everybody, and do stick around for cocktails, and don't forget to check out our new Boris Karloff-designed toilet facilities. See you soon. Bye. Well, thank you for listening to this sermon-only edition of Creepy Cove Community Church Podcast. You can find more sermons, but also full services as well, if you wanted to check out creepycove.com. Remember, support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash creepycove, or visit creepycove.com and sign up to the Peter Laws newsletter so you can stay in the loop. Have a great week. Take care.